This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Into the Wild. I'm your host Ryan Dalton. Thanks as always for clicking play on the pod. Welcome everyone to another episode of Into the Wild. I hope you're all well. As I record this now, the storm has hit England. (laughs) Wheelie bins are flying around everywhere. Fences are falling down. People are panicking out here. I genuinely heard someone (laughs) half an hour ago. This is true. I just tweeted this. Half an hour ago. I got into the house and just before I did, I walked past someone on the phone and I heard them go, oh God, it's awful. Derek nearly got hit by a bin this morning. <laughs> I just, uh, I mean, I hope Derek's all right, but you know, that is hilarious. <laughs> the panic we have in the UK. Before we get onto 60 Second Nature News, let me uh, say some thank yous and some shout outs. Um, a big thank you to Alex Evans, Neil Young, Jack Perks and Thiavol2. Not sure who you are, but that's your tag name. But um, but thank you, nevertheless. The four of you gave us some lovely reviews on iTunes recently and it was greatly appreciated. Also some shout outs to Tom Aspinall, George Steedman Jones, Jenna Atkinson and Bettina Patton for taking part in Weekly Nature Highlight over on Instagram, which happens every Sunday throughout the day over on Into the Wild podcast on Instagram. And an even bigger thank you to long-term listener and great support of the show, Simon Beedy, for tipping us on our Kofi account. Thank you, mate. I enjoyed several oat milk chai lattes. <laughs> thank you very much. And something else I would like to say is we had quite a bad review of the show recently, which is always always sucks to get bad reviews or to hear that someone thinks what you're doing is, is crap. So that was that was a bit of a shame. But I was a professional comedian. I did stand up for seven years. I can take critiques. I don't. I don't mind. Take it on the chin, head up, and worry about it, mate. Keep walking. Listen to it. Take it on board and change. Right. But there was something in the review that I didn't quite understand. Um. So they said that um, I use unnecessary f words, which was a shame, and they thought it was an, att- an attempt to be cool and down with the kids. Now, um, obviously, we'll take it on board, we'll take all, all criticism and negative reviews on board. Uh, but to that particular point, um, I would just like to say, <laughs> off. <laughs> I am not going to stop swearing. Swearing has been in my language ever since I was a kid or my family swear. If used correctly, swearing is a wonderful part of the, well, every language on the planet. It shows passion. It shows enthusiasm. So I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop saying 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 I'm going to say all the swear words and I'm going to encourage my guests to do the same because you know what? We censor it out. So don't worry about swearing in every single problem on the planet. Swearing is really not one of them. Right, let's have some positivity, shall we? Let's go into 60-second nature news. They also said that I'm too animated on here. Or something like that. My voice was too, like, 80s TV show. So, um, Oscar, let's roll into 60-second nature news. Let's go. The Amphibian Foundation have successfully, for the first time, bred the threatened, imperiled forest flatwood salamander. That's a mouthful. This salamander species has lost 90% of its range, but part of the recovery plan is to begin captive breeding. Freshwater dolphins have returned in Nepal. After one decade of absence, river dolphins were spotted in the Narayani River. The particular spot was of a Ganges river dolphin. Snow leopard status in the wild has been changed from endangered to now vulnerable. This sounds odd, but that is a good thing. 
New estimates put the numbers at between 7 and 10,000 individuals, which is almost a double that of 10 years ago. And finally, a new marine protected area in Cuba now conserves 728 square kilometers of habitat for crocs, manatees and hawksbill turtles. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. Let's go to the episode. Okay, everyone, on to today's episode. On today's show, I spoke with filmmaker Tom Opray. Tom has just made a film called Killing the Shepherd. Tom also runs an organisation called the Shepherds of Wildlife Society. The film shows a settlement and community in Tanzania that was struggling desperately. I managed to watch Killing the Shepherd just before I recorded this episode and I'm glad I did and the link to the film is in the write-up of this episode. Please give it a watch. It was a pleasure to be able to speak with Tom and give him the opportunity to tell us more about what the film was about. Please do excuse a bit of sound quality in this episode. We had a few tech issues but I think we got it all all right. But let's waste no time. Here is Killing the Shepherd with Tom Opray. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on Into the Wild. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. First important question, how are you? You know, I, I'm here in Montana, northwest corner. I'm right up against Glacier National Park and about 60 miles from British Columbia. So I would say that uh, I live in a pretty cool spot and winter <laughs> is starting to wane, though I do have my, my I'm growing a beard right now, which I have never done in my life. And I've got my lumberjack shirt on so I can go collect some firewood to keep the, keep the uh, fireplace going great for my wife. And so she likes that nice hot, uh, dry air that comes from that. So i uh, got to keep mama happy at home here. And she likes to get you out of the house. That's surely what she's doing there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we were, we both work out of the house. So uh, we're really blessed to be here. And we've got four young kids, I say four, you know, from eight to, to 17 and a half. So oh, wow. um, everybody's off to school now, but it's, uh, we're like everybody else. It's, uh, we, we're doing bus service these days to all the athletic events and drivers <laughs> training and all the fun things everybody gets to do when you have teenagers. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, mate. I'm really looking forward to this chat. Do you want to start to tell my listeners uh, by just saying who you are and what is it you do? Yeah, you know, Ryan, first, I'd like to say thanks a lot to you and, and your sponsors and to your listeners for letting me come on your show. It's a, a real pleasure and, and an honor to be here. My background's pretty simple. I, I've been in the communications business my whole world, I guess, for uh, lack of a better word. But uh, my dad was an outdoor writer here in the United States. He wrote for some big magazines uh, called Outdoor Life and Field and Stream for 30 years. So mm. I was really blessed to grow up uh, in the outdoors. And so I, I was in Michigan, which is uh, surrounded, you know, for your viewers, is surrounded by the Great Lakes, you know, the largest amount yeah, of wow. fresh water in the world, uh, filled with salmon and trout in the rivers and the streams and the lakes. And so phenomenal fishing. Uh, at five, my dad handed me a fly rod and said, here, let's go out there and, and, and go catch some trout. So I, I learned how to make that perfect uh, drift-free cast. I, I'm, a, I'm a snob when it comes to fly fishing. I love fishing with dry flies so um, because I love to just try to figure out how to, to engage with that trout and get him to, to take that fly. And, and it's, so it's been really a wonderful uh, opportunity and very blessed to, to have experiences in the outdoors. And, and since then, uh, you know, I've worked in the film business since I was well, I mean, I worked in PBS when I was in college and uh, ended up working in the feature film business to national documentaries here in the United States. I've actually produced shows for Discovery Channel for Shark Week and, um, and then spent most of my career in the film business producing uh, te television commercials and product films for manufacturers, mostly outdoor recreation type products. So mm -hmm. um, stuff that's kept me outdoors, you know, it's just uh, it's been that's been my uh, my ballywick is is always I don't do uh, mayonnaise commercials or uh, or burger commercials. <laughs> I uh, but the funny thing is we'll be out shooting on the water on something and first somebody will pull up in a boat and say hey what are you guys filming I'm like oh mayonnaise commercial you know and so obviously they they turn around and leave they're like oh this is boring but we may be doing something with supermodels you never know so um, but yeah it's just been an awesome life being in the outdoors and and being able to capture it on film and so I spent. 
I mean, I'm getting to be old now. I've had a camera in my hand since I was 19. Uh, I've been doing it for 30 years, a little over 30 years. And uh, I've helped a lot of companies make millions and millions of dollars with their national advertisements. And, uh, you know, with this COVID thing going on and, and, and some of the mm. things I've seen with changes in our society and what happens with wildlife, because I spent, I've just been just blessed to spend a lot of time all over the world documenting uh, wildlife and wildlife conservation, our modern conservation model uh, that we really changed champion here in North America, which was uh, brought about by Teddy Roosevelt and other uh, folks like him back in that turn of the century where, you know, we had decimated our wildlife populations in North America with our European colonialization of this continent. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of those folks said, hey, wait a minute here, we need to do something about this. And so they instituted some incredible uh, conservation programs, which basically is the reason why we have all this public lands, national forest, state forest, um, other federal lands, refuges and uh, for wildlife. And, and it's just been a real blessing for us because with that has come an incredible population of wildlife. So I've been really, really been able to enjoy that and spend time with it, but been able to change course and go around the world and see what else is going on and i'll tell you man there's some bad stuff going on in the world <laughs> habitat and uh and so i've kind of taken you know since i've been working doing the, the filmmaking thing for the folks that have big bucks i decided to start doing something a little bit different let's do something that's going to mean something uh regardless you know who's going to remember a tv commercial i did you know next month let alone 30 years from now and mm. so a bunch of photographers, wildlife photographers and other filmmaker friends of mine, we got together and we created a little nonprofit called the Shepherds of Wildlife Society. And, that, you know, basically we at, we're out there, we see what's going on, we see man's impact, you know, we're out there documenting nature every day and we see what's happening and it's not good. And so we're donating and contributing our talents and our, and our content to be able to create messaging campaigns so that we can educate the broader public about conservation. You know, and what I talk about is, is, is sustainable use of these resources because you know, everything in nature is programmed to overpopulate the carrying capacity of the land. And mm. eventually we're gonna have too much of something. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's prey species, predator species, there's always going to be something that could be potentially out of balance. And, and one of the wonderful things that the modern conservation models, that modern conservation ethos we have here, especially in North America, is that we've taken the historically wildlife populations, and, you know, predator and prey populations would do they'd have this cycle of these huge ups and downs. So when the population would grow to a certain point, you know, disease would set in or there would be a drought or there'd be a lack of food and you'd have animals starving, uh, you know, on the landscape. But what modern conservation has been able to do is, is being able to kind of take those big highs and big lows out of it and made it look a lot more like our regular cardiograph of our own hearts, you know, just a nice steady yeah. line going back and forth, which has produced a, a healthy environment, you know, full of biodiversity. So, you know, that's, that was, and our mission of this organization is to literally reconnect modern society with nature. So shepherds of wildlife society.org. If folks are interested in reading about what we're doing or watching videos, um, that's the place to go. And, uh, and really there's a, large group of people and in, in, you know here in North America that don't understand our conservation ethos here and how or the reasons behind why you, there's always birds in your bird feeder why there's turkeys in your backyard and there's white-tailed deer running in front of your car all the time mm -hmm. it's because we have all these animals because we've taken care of them we've created a habitat for them a healthy habitat for them and ultimately what we want to do is make sure that we consider humans in this equation and we want to make yep. sure that we have a better planet for ourselves to live in because at the end of the day you know, why not leave this better than you found it? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it is as simple as that, isn't it? It, is, it? You come back to like, why not have this for hundreds of thousands of years rather than just my own lifespan um, and just enjoy it to myself. And you obviously you talk about the natural world there and from many different angles. And it, it clearly is something you've grown up with and been immersed with all your life. But for you, what what do you love most about the natural world? You know, I... It's immersing yourself in it. You know, I live mm -hmm. here in Montana. 
I can head up into the mountains here and in several wilderness areas are within, uh, you know, not very far from my home and being able to throw a backpack on and go out in there and, and drink the water at the, uh, you know, at the top of the drainage, you know, where it's not been <laughs> filtered down through uh, yeah. you know, different developments or anything like that. And so, it, you know, it's, it's being out there watching the sunrise in that morning and, and, and watching the weather, but it's engaging in it. That is the key thing is that a lot of us have forgotten that opportunity to engage in nature. I mean, we, we are a part of this natural world. We're, you know, we see all these incredible nature documentaries that the BBC does and Nat Geo and Discovery Channel. Unfortunately, the vast majority of them forget the, the 10,000 pound gorilla in the room, us. And so, you know, <laughs> engaging in it, it, it means being able to, to see cause and reaction of, of what, you know, you're out there and you have to survive. And so mm. you have to anticipate things. You have to look at the weather. You have to see what things are going on. If you're in grizzly bear country, you have to make sure you pack your food properly so that you don't create a conflict. Because when you do, either you're in big trouble or they're in big trouble. And mm. so it's much better to, to keep that harmony out there. But I'm also a sportsman, you know, and I, I've grown up. Uh, you know, feeding my family. I don't think I bought a piece of beef until I was in my in my mid twenties. Uh, we always wow. had venison. Uh, we had ducks and geese and grouse and pheasant and uh, you know phenomenal salmon and trout. I mean, all the things when you go to the high end gourmet uh, restaurant, <laughs> yeah. you want to pick those things. But that was my <laughs> freezer. It was full of that stuff all the time. Now I'm not a gourmet cook, but. That's how I grew up and, and being able to engage in nature and knowing that you're having a positive impact and it has been really rewarding for me because, again, here in North America, our sportsmen and women, our, our fishermen and our women, uh, our fishermen and, and our, our hunters are the folks that pay for the vast majority of the conservation work. So in conservation, it's not only the science and the biologists who keep track of these, you know, these large pieces of land and the animals that live within them, and it's not just the animals that are hunted it's the you know all the animals including the non-game animals but these folks spend a lot of money pursuing these uh endeavors and they've we have you know since the 1930s we've had the uh, Pittman robertson act where it's at about a 12 percent excise tax is added to all firearms and all archery tackle so you know it doesn't matter why you you purchase that item if it's you're going to go out and plink in your in your backyard or a gun range or you're going to pick up a bow and arrow you're helping pay for conservation and so that money is collected and last year was almost a billion dollars in the united states and wow. that money doesn't go to our irs the dreaded irs it goes to the department of interior and then they allocate it to all 50 states fishing game agencies so it's really important because it pays not only for that biology but also pays for the game wardens to to protect the resource it also pays to help educate people about what you know what why we're taking care of these things again mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's making sure we've got a better planet to live in yeah and do you know what there was a moment you said there about like you know immer being immersed in wildlife and even knowing how to pack your lunch when you go out because of bears and animals that are around in in your environment as a british person <laughs> and a lot of my listeners <laughs> will be from the uk it seems so Oh, just far out. That, and I think this is why my country struggles to realise wild animal conflict and people conflict as a thing, because if it's not, you know, badgers are the one thing we've got to worry about. And that's in one specific region, probably the West Country. Apart from that, Tom, I wildlife's not scaring me in this country yeah and, and, and I'll tell you, Ryan, though, I don't pack just lunch. When we go into the wilderness, it's usually for like a week. So oh, we're wow. packing all the food we need for an entire week. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And of course, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're ex using a lot of calories climbing in these mountains. So it's not the, the 1,500 to 2,000 calories that the average human eats, you know, in your country or our country. Mm. We need to literally eat four or five, 6,000 calories a day. So you're, but you don't want to pack on a bunch of weight because you're going to have all this on your back. And then if you're yeah. actually, uh, you know, say bow hunting or something, then you have all this other stuff. And then when you are, if you are successful, which isn't very often when I I'm in the middle of nowhere. But if you are successful, then you have to figure out, you know, how to safely get that animal out, sit back to your vehicle, which may be, it may be, uh, it may be 20, 25, 30 K away. So I guess we should talk about my film, right? 
Oh my God, we totally need to talk about your film, Killing the Shepherd. Now, I guess I've got to start with the obvious question for the listeners now. Do you want to tell us a bit about what the film is about? Yeah, it, it, it is simply the film is about a rural community in, in Zambia that was led by a woman chief who basically she dared to break the bonds of poverty by waging a war against illegal wildlife poaching. And uh, so I, I was doing a, back in 2017, no, it's actually 2016, I was doing a conference. I was speaking uh, at a conference about wildlife conservation. And uh, when I finished my presentation, a fellow came up to me and started talking to me and he had this weird accent. It turned out he was from Zambia. And uh, so we started <laughs> chit-chatting and he started to tell me this crazy story about this chief that came and knocked on his door. And this guy um, is uh, had an import-export business that worked with the mining industry, but he also on the side was a professional hunter and had been his whole life. His father actually immigrated from the UK right after World War II. He was a gunner on the HMS Hood, and we all remember our history. We know what happened to the Hood yep. and he got sunk by the Bismarck and not very many sailors survived. I think only yeah. a couple hundred out of 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, but he immigrated in the late 1940s and went to work for the game department, his father did. And uh, he helped demarcate all the national parks that were at that time, Northern Rhodesia. And so this family's been really involved in conservation issues. But as a professional hunter, this fellow, his name's Roland Norton, he had been the head of the national organization that represents the guides and professional hunters for the country of Zambia. He told me this whole story. I said, this is crazy what happened. What, what's going on? And basically, these people live or lived in an area that had been completely depleted of, of almost all its wildlife uh, yeah. as far as game species go. So this is an area that in the 1980s, into the early 1990s, had the big five. You know, had elephant, had rhino, had very good population of Cape Buffalo, plenty of lion and leopard, and of course, lots of other antelope species and warthog and so forth. Mm. And uh, what what happened though is there was some there was some closures to safari hunting in Zambia. The first one was in '87, and then was followed up in 2001 and 2002 due to corruption in in the industry, corruption in the government. That's a problem in a lot of these countries, and so they literally just stopped all hunting in the, as those time periods. And so what happened is that that created a vacuum because in these, in these concession areas, uh, when they have a, an operator in there that's doing a good job, they create income, you know, the financial stream to be able to pay to have game scouts go out and patrol the land and protect the resource. And so at the end of the day, there was these people had to leave the landscape because there was, they, they couldn't work. There was no money. And then what happened was, is, uh, you know, this particular area is only about a four or five hour drive, depending on where you go from uh, Lusaka, the capital, which is the largest city in, in Zambia. And, uh, and there is a huge multi-billion dollar industry in Africa for game meat. You know, they call it bush meat. And yeah. so, I mean, you think about it. I mean, it's uh, people love to eat bush meat. They don't care what it is, whether it be an antelope or um, an elephant or uh, or a primate. They don't care. They don't. It's just bush meat. That's it. Mm. And it's such a big deal that, uh, interesting enough, I've got a young child who uh, plays soccer, and we had the UK Soccer League. I don't know what the, they came. They come over to the United States every year, and they run these soccer camps. So during COVID last year, we couldn't. Nobody could find anybody that uh, would allow these coaches to stay at their house. Of course, my wife put her hand up, says, "Okay, you guys can stay at our house." <laughs> so we got we got three coaches, uh, a couple guys from the UK, and then one guy from Nigeria. These guys were talking to me. I, I think I just come back, or just uh, yeah, I just come back from doing some filming in Zambia, and so we were talking about the film, and and I just happened to pull up some pictures I had from some of the scouts on on uh, you know they confiscated some illegal bush meat along with mm. some uh, arrested some poachers. So I happened to show the picture of the of the packages of dried game meat to the guy from Nigeria. Now Nigeria is nowhere near you know Southern Africa, and yeah. uh, and I'm was curious what his response was. He's like, oh man, that's game meat, a bush meat. We love that stuff. <laughs> I mean. And, and that's just, you think about it, I mean, as, as long as humans have walked on two feet, we've hunted, and we've been eating, we hunted because we wanted to eat protein, you know, animals. And so, and I think even today, it's, uh, uh, the last time I checked with UN data, there's over 80 billion animals, land-based animals, that are killed and consumed by human beings every year. 
and 1.4 trillion water-based animals. And that's just for us to survive uh, wow. with our population numbers. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. But, yeah, this bushmeat thing is a big deal. So basically what happened was is people moved into the area. They, they built villages right wherever the concentrations of wildlife were. And they literally went to town. It was industrial-scale killing. And not hunting. This is poaching, killing, dry the meat, put it in a vehicle, get it to town and sell it. And yeah. so the wildlife was decimated. And they use not only uh, homemade uh, firearms like shotguns and, and muzzle loaders, but the most effective killers are wire snares. And one poacher can go ahead, because the thing is, is that everything in Africa has to drink. I mean, everything in the world has to drink. But in Africa, where you get these semi-arid areas, water it can be in very limited supply. So during certain times of the year, the wildlife may have to have may only one place to get water, you know, at a spring or a drinking hole or the river gets down to there's literally only little puddles here and there. And so when the animals come, I mean, they dig holes in the ground and around in these dry riverbeds just to find water underneath, you know, sometimes yeah. it could be. You know, it could be a meter or two below the ground and, and elephants are digging the holes out, primates, you know, baboons and so forth. But that may be the only water and they can go ahead and ring those sources with, you know, with 20, 30, 100 snares and literally kill everything in that ecosystem. And the thing about snares that the why they're so effective, they don't always kill the males because the males almost always have horns. I'm talking about antelope here. And a lot mm. of times when they'll walk into that snare, that horn will hit that wire sometime. And when it does, the sound it makes is very unnatural. And almost yeah. always the animal will back up out of that. It's going to hear it, snare. yeah. Yeah. Now the females and the young don't have horns. So when that snare pushes around their neck and they feel that pressure, that 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 flight instinct comes in and they almost always kill themselves. So what happened is that if you got enough snares on the landscape, you can literally destroy an entire generation of animals. Because wow. remember, they're all breeding every year. Mm. And so every one of those babies, you can start to take out most of the females. And so what happened is the wildlife there, which in the 18, 1980s, early 1990s, was a Valhalla of wildlife. Now, this is not the Serengeti. This is the Lawano or Lawangua slash Luensemfa valleys there. And so it, it's, 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 for, it's the very southern part of the Rift valleys that come down through Zambia from Tanzania. So you've got a, a Rift cliff on one end, on the northern end of it. And then you've got a series of small mountains on the southern boundary of the thing. And so it's rugged country. It's Mopani forest. It's from scrubland to cathedral Mopanis. Uh, it, it's the most beautiful natural habitat in that part of the world. It's not out of Africa, so you don't see herds of animals. But mm -hmm. there was and, and can, can be large populations of animals living in these habitats. The, it, it, it's interesting because when, when Roland Norton showed up, this chief knocked on his door and said, hey, can you come and see? I need some help. There's nobody helping me, and we need to have a safari operator. And he's like, well, you don't even have a, a, a quota for hunting, so how am I going to make any money? And she's all, just come with me. We'll figure something out. She'd heard he was a very honest person, so he was like, okay. So he had a son who's also, <laughs> Alistair, who's a uh, also a professional, full-time professional hunter, they went out and looked at it. And of course, you see this beautiful landscape, beautiful habitat, healthy habitat, tons of diversity in the vegetation, but almost no animals. And so, I mean, I got there in 2017 to go follow up this story. And I'm like, okay, is this something real? Or is this somebody, you know, pulling my leg here? And I got there and I was there for about 10 days. And I brought a foot still photographer, a guy named Tony Bynum. And the two of us went out there and I don't think we saw 15 animals in, in 10 days. Wow. And we spent a lot of time looking. And we spent a lot of time talking to people and whatnot. And then as we were wrapping this up, I was filming some stuff. He was shooting stills. And uh, we were getting on the airplane to fly out of Lusaka after we'd spent that time there. And he's like, dude, this is an incredible story. I mean, so what happened on this is that these folks, you know, the community didn't have any help. So, you know, like I said, there was people starving to death when they first got there, when the Nortons first arrived. They had had a failure with their crops. These are subsistence farmers. They're living mm. in an area that's hard to live in, you know, substandard soils, trying to grow corn, which is from North America, which needs lots of water, needs lots of yeah. nutrients in the soil. Neither one of those exist in Loano. And so these people are just scratching to survive. And so basically what happened is, is that the Nortons worked with the chief, Her Royal Highness Chief Shikabeta, 
who reached out to them and worked with a community to come up with a program that would allow these people to, you know, kind of get up the first couple rungs of prosperity. Nothing is given to anybody. Everybody, they pay for things, it costs, they, they get things. But they built this incredible, uh, I call it an economic model, of where these folks could literally benefit by seeing the wildlife populations increase. They first thing they did is they had to wean them off of, off of, uh, of killing any animals. So there's two types of poaching that were going on before the Norton showed up. The subsistence poaching, which most people understand. That's people just trying to put something in the pot to feed their family. Yeah. The big problem was what I mentioned earlier, which is the bushmeat poaching, where they were literally destroying entire generations of, of certain animal species there. Um, and again, you know, rhinos didn't walk away. Elephants didn't walk away. Um, you know, the Cape buffalo didn't walk away. They all were, all were shot and killed and cut up mm. and sent to markets in, in Lusaka. But what they first wanted to do was give them a protein source. So they went ahead and uh, they made an agreement to build a fish farm and uh, six... 30,000 gallon, I don't remember what it is in, in metrics, but 30,000 gallon tanks yeah. where they could literally completely control the environment of the fish and, and grow fish and sell them to the people at cost. And then, uh, and then if there's surplus, they've got a deal where they can sell that to the, the wholesale fish market in Lusaka. So it's, a, it's, it's become a really good win-win deal for them. That's amazing. Yeah, so do that. But there's, you know, the farming, they needed help with farming. They were using seeds that uh, literally from, were from previous crops. Every year they would collect seeds from their previous crop. And then, of course, you know, most of us have had a garden. No, that doesn't work very well after a while because it's, mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it's, like, it's incest, you know, and yeah. it's continually <laughs> growing from the same stock and it's not going to get worse. It's not, it's going to get any better. It's going to get worse. And so, if, interesting enough, the word got out that Roland was doing this project in the lower Luan. And so we went to a seed dealership in Lusaka and said, hey, I'm trying to help these people out. There's nobody helping them. The UN's not there. There's no NGOs. The government can't afford to do it. I'm just trying to do what we can do. And so uh, the guy said, hey, you know, he says, I, I just want to get a sample of seeds, corn seeds, so I can show these people why they need to change up their seed stock. And so the guy says, come back next week and I'll have something for you. So he came back the next week. The guy wasn't there, but his secretary was. And she says, oh, your stuff's out on the loading dock. Go pick it up. Well, Roland walked out in the loading dock, and there wasn't a package of seeds. There was a pallet of seeds. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he's, he went back in the office. There must be a mistake. I mean, we can't afford this. I mean, we're not. And she's, no, no. The boss was so interested in what you're doing. He wanted you. He wants to help out. Give those to the people as a thank you from us. Wow. So, I mean, it was really cool how some of the things happen. And, and mm. there was other instances like that where people in the community in Lusaka stepped up to help. And, and, and really what's it's fascinating is that I ended up spending about 100, 120 days somewhere in that neck of woods in the lower Loano documenting what was going on and meeting with the people and going on patrol with the Game Scouts, doing some pretty hairy things too. But it, it was just fascinating to see what transpired from day one until four years later, you know, when I was wrapping the film up because mm. the wildlife populations exploded. I mean, really? I didn't see any animals hardly at all that first trip. By my last trip, I was seeing hundreds and hundreds of animals every day. And, and, and there was animals that we hadn't seen, uh, like they hadn't seen zebra there in eons. And now they're seeing zebras had gone up in the mountains and hidden from the poachers. And now they were filtering out of the mountains. Same thing with roan. There's a good population of roan now. Uh, the lion populations in, and the uh, uh, leopard population started to grow. And so then you started hearing, I mean, every night you would hear lions. I mean, this is, you know, the whole... I mean, the whole thing that we talk about being there the first time somebody experiences Africa and they hear that lion roar. I mean, it just yeah. it just makes the hair on the back of your neck, you know, yeah. that primitive you know, consciousness there that we've all have ingrained in us. So it was really, really interesting to see how that changed. But probably the most important to me, Ryan, was that I saw people there was there was hardly i mean we're talking about an area that's it's it's the size of it's bigger than the size of the state of delaware it's 1.2 million acres it's bigger than the grand canyon national park here in wow. the united states and you know roland has a small group of about 60 scouts that work for him full time they've built schools 
They have built medical clinics. Um, you know, there was one clinic or two clinics in the entire area to service these people. There was only a couple of schools, major school, you know, state-sponsored schools. They end up building, I think they're on their fifth school classroom block that they have. So literally there's, there's probably 800 to 900 kids now going to school that never went to school prior to me arriving there. So it's just really been wonderful to see the change to the people. Because now there used to be a couple small little shack businesses that were just little stores where you could pick up things. Now women, uh, Roland has a soft loan program. So they get zero interest short-term loans. And now women have started all kinds of businesses. And uh, so the businesses, little businesses have popped up all over the place uh, to take care of folks. The other thing that's really fascinating is, well, I'll talk about the schools. I want to just get on that. The first time I went yeah. there, there was I, I saw, uh, I went and saw a school and their school was a open air thatched roof shack basically these kids went to school in they didn't have uniforms they didn't have proper school books and things like that and they didn't even have a proper teacher which is some some older person from the community that actually went to school at some time <clears throat> and so i i documented that and right next to this they had a concrete slab with some blocks that were sitting there. And I asked, well, what's the deal with this? I said, well, this is a school that the community tried to build, but they ran out of resources and they, they couldn't do it. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. And when I got back on the first trip, my father-in-law, Dr. Um, Peter Nalos, started a, a nonprofit here in, in uh, the United States called African Children's Schools. Mm. And uh, to date, he's, his nonprofit's built, I think, close to 60 schools throughout Southern Africa, mostly in Ethiopia, but also in Uganda, Kenya. And we ended up, when I showed him the video of this project was going on, the next day we were on a phone call with the Nortons on a WhatsApp call. And within a week, his nonprofit had wired half the funds to start that two schools in the bush Incredible. there in Luano. So it's really been a humbling experience to see what's happened. Because like I said, there are now hundreds and hundreds of kids that are going to school for the first time. And and the schools were so well received that uh, that particular school I mentioned earlier, it had been built for about 80 kids, you know, two different shifts during the day. So younger kids in the morning, older kids in the afternoon. Mm. Within three months, the school had 300 kids coming to it. Oh, my God. So once the new school was built. And so we've already built a second classroom block you know, that's part of it. And now we're trying to fund a third block right now is where there'll be literally three classroom blocks all tied together. And it's just, I mean, and these kids are learning English, which is the lang international language of business. And mm -hmm. so the opportunity for these kids to understand about conservation and what their, what their homeland and how important it is to them and the wildlife, because the wildlife populations have exploded. The people are, are happy. They have jobs. The kids are, have full bellies and they're learning about conservation. And they understand that because the wildlife has a value, that's why the Nortons came in the first place. And so one of the really cool things about this overall project that's really important is that the safari hunting company is no longer a safari hunting company. It's a biodiversity company. It's there to protect that resource and by getting in a community partnership. And the community was so happy with what the Nortons did that um, they were able to work with National Parks and Wildlife in Zambia to get a 20-year lease on the land you know, for the rights on it with a five-year automatic renewal. Now, typically, it's five and seven-year terms for those concession areas in Zambia. So they now have an entire generation to affect change. And the Royal Council and Her Royal Highness Chief Shikabeta was so happy with things that they gave them a lease. A nine, it's 90, you can't get land there, you get leases. So they've yeah. got about, I think about 15 or 20 hectares of land underneath the development, which would be the fish farm. They gave them a 99 year lease, which is transferable. So they were able to secure that investment. They did the same wow. thing with their full safari camp. You know, So basically, if you're gonna start a business, you're not gonna invest a bunch of money in something if you can't protect it. Well, this is not normal in Africa, especially in this part of Africa. Now they have leases underneath the land that they that they do their development in, so they can they they could sell the outfit next year if they wanted to. 
and be able to transfer those leases. They'd obviously have to get the long-term lease uh, on the land with National Parks and Wildlife approved, but there's an opportunity to do that. So it's not like you're just throwing money into a hole like you typically do when you go to Africa because you're only going to be there for a short period of time mm. for these operators that are there. Uh, now you've got this entire generation. You've got the, the land securing your developments, and they've literally become a part of the community. I mean, they both speak fluent slowly. There's only about 90,000 people in the world that speak that dialect. It's a Bantu dialect, but they both speak it fluently, and they are the lifeblood as far as helping connect all the different parts of this community together because there are no cars there. I mean, there's very few people have vehicles. You know, they, they're starting to get some bicycles there. I'm starting to see these mud shack with thatch roofs starting to disappear and seeing block houses with doors and windows and metal sheets for roofs. I mean, I, I've seen all that in a short period of time, four or five years, but you know, the wildlife population blowing up and then the people being able to have the opportunities to have the most basic things that we take for granted. Food stability. You know, we can go down to the grocery store and get food whenever we want. Okay, that's great. Access to health care. You know, your country, it's, you know, you guys have socialized medicine, mm -hmm. so everybody has access to it. We have it too. We just do it a little bit differently. You know, the other thing is, is the opportunity for your kid to get an education. And that's what these people have been able to accomplish because of this partnership with the Nortons and Makasa Safari their, their safari company and this whole overall business model that's based on protecting the resource and managing it and so that's the, been the biggest thing for me so in making this film and putting it all together you know the film's not about wildlife conservation it's not about hunting safari hunting it's really about whether or not these people are going to benefit from their hard work in wildlife conservation because mm. at the end of the day if there is no hunting, then the Nortons aren't going to be able to really recoup their business, you know, as far as the money they've invested in it. But again, they're only looking to, to take out a very small population of animals, which we said earlier, everything's programmed to overpopulate the carrying capacity of the land. So it, it can be a win-win. You know, it's, it's not a formula that you see a lot in Africa. The key thing there is that it's long-term. And it, it includes making a pretty serious financial investment by the operator. And so I, I hope that other countries in Southern Africa will look at what's going on, will watch this film, and maybe start to think about how they can start changing what they're doing. I know in, in your country right now, there's a big talk with the uh, Boris Johnson conservative government about instituting a trophy hunting ban. Yeah. I understand that, why they want to do that. There's very few people in your country who actually go abroad and go hunting. I don't believe in this word of trophy hunting. Hunting is hunting. We've been doing it since the beginning of time. We'll be doing it till the end of time. The reality is, is now there's 8 billion people on this planet and we're destroying the wildlife habitat of the world. And there won't be any wild in the wildlife out there if we don't do something about it. These people are doing something about it. And if they can continue to benefit, and that's the key thing here, Ryan, if, if people benefit, the people who take care of or, or managing these resources can see a benefit from it, then they will take care of it. If they don't see a benefit, it'll go away. If you tell them that the lion's not worth anything because it can't be imported into the UK as a hunting trophy, then what they're going to do is say, hey, that lion came in and killed my goat. I'm going to put strychnine poison in and lace it in that goat, and I'm going to let it kill that pride alliance. And that's exactly what happens. And it happens all over Africa. As soon as you take the value out of that resource, then it, it it's, it's literally goes the way of the dodo bird. And mm -hmm. so that's why it's so important that, you know, the Boris Johnson government, you know, they need to understand that their idealism of this, this you know, beautiful African savanna with wildlife everywhere and else only exists because people are taking care of it. And if the people... You know, like I said, if they don't benefit, they're going to get rid of it. And so, you know, we have to be cognizant of the fact that these people, this is how they, this is how they survive on the landscape. As I mentioned earlier, I mean, it, there is no life there without being to see some value from the resources. And so not only are they protecting the wildlife, but they're protecting the forest. They're protecting the rivers. This river had been poached out also, the Lewin Sumpfer River it runs down this valley. And they literally put out more and more nets and caught more and more fish to the point where they made the net sizes so small that they caught all the juvenile fish that hadn't even reached maturity that couldn't even breed. So then you lose yeah. everything. And then you've got outfits that, uh, you know, like the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which went ahead and wanted, and, you know, great organization wanting to stop malaria. So they put out thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of these mosquito nets, but they impregnated them with poisons in order to kill mosquitoes. 
Well, these folks don't know any different. So when the, they went to eat, they might use these mosquito nets in the water. Well, of course, the poisons leach out of the water, kill the, the fish, the really young fish, but also start to cause problems for the people when they're drinking the water there. So there's a lot of cause and effects. And we have to understand, I know that Boris Johnson and his wife are, are very much in uh, wanting to make sure wildlife is going to be around for the long term. But the way that they want to go about it is absolutely ass backward. Mm-hmm. I would rather see someone benefit and take care of it. And like I mentioned earlier, I mean, sportsmen just in excise taxes last year was almost a billion dollars was collected for wildlife conservation. But that doesn't include the billions of dollars. And I'm talking 10, I mean, 20, 30, 50 billion dollars that's collected on the economic side for people to go and pursue these things, whether it buying tackle or clothing or gear or guns or paying for gas to go to northern Michigan and getting a hotel or leasing land. Uh, you know, there's all of these factors that go into it. And it's literally a multi, multi billion dollar industry in North America and Africa. It's not a multi billion dollar industry. There's just not that many people that go to Africa to hunt. I know we it's a big deal on the internet, but really, yeah, is, you're right. You know, only about you know the, the studies that have been done show about anywhere from say 200 to four, four or five hundred million dollars is generated annually in Africa due to uh, international tourists going hunting. That's not a huge amount of money, but the one thing people have to understand: it's not about the money. It's about the fact that they're creating value in these very remote areas that cannot hand, don't have the infrastructure for, don't have the infrastructure for photographic yeah. or ecotourism. They don't yeah, have the lodges. Yeah, they don't have the, um, the, the, the big veranda of wildlife mm. like you see in the Serengeti or, or the variety of them. You're not going to see the numbers or you're not going to see the big five and all that stuff. They don't have that. It doesn't exist. But those areas are more than double the size of all the national parks in southern Africa. And these are the areas in most cases that surround the national parks. And this is the buffer zone. So when the national parks population of animals exceed the carrying capacity, like we said, everything grows beyond the carrying capacity. Those animals get pushed out into these concession areas and then they continue to go on and flourish. And so in many cases in Southern Africa, and I'm talking about basically from, from Tanzania South, the wildlife populations in the national parks have been poached almost out of existence. And the only place you find wildlife now are on the hunting concessions because those people are protecting the resource and, you know, and the animals and the habitat from illegal logging and from charcoal production and so forth. So it's a very complex deal, but the reality is it all comes back on us as humans. And so at the end of the day, we need to understand that these people that are on the landscape that are taking care of it, they have to see some sort of reward. And if they don't, they're not going to take care of it. So the other question, the other thing is, is how are we to tell them that they can't have their most basic human rights? Exactly. I think that's, that's the key thing. And I'm glad you said that there, because these aren't, we're not talking about gaining privileges here. We're not talking about gaining luxuries. We're talking about basic human rights that of, often us forget that we even have in certain areas of the world. And I tried to explain it to a friend recently because they said, well, you know, why would people not value the wildlife? And I said, well, you have a garden and you grow your veg and you grow some wildflowers and stuff. And you sometimes get annoyed when the fox comes in and digs stuff up. And you'd probably want to see that fox out of your garden. But if the government suddenly reimbursed you or said, don't get rid of that fox of your garden because we want more foxes in the area and we're going to give you 500 bucks a month to have more foxes in the area you you wouldn't care about that fox you'd welcome that fox you'd want more foxes in and so it's exactly the same thing but we're just talking about much bigger animals with much more real problems against much more basic human rights like you said really yeah and and, I, and you know a lot of people say well how can you hunt these iconic animals you know the lions or the elephant or, or these iconic uh, sheep species uh in, you know the argales of of mm. you know throughout asia and the reality is is that Again, if it doesn't have a value as humans, we don't really take care of it. We're not very good neighbors, as I mentioned earlier. We're not very good neighbors with the rest of the planet. Rest of the planet. I, I give an analogy. I call it the, the rat analogy. So, Ryan, if you have a rat in your house, what do you do? Good question. I'm going to think about this because I've had a mouse in my house, which I'm not. I'm not starting a poem. Um, <laughs> And I, it wasn't a problem, so I let it stay. But rats, I've never had, but can be. I would probably get rid of it. <laughs> what What happens if the rat's worth fifty thousand US or fifty thousand pounds? Tom, I'd sell that rat. 
you'd breed a whole bunch of rats, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. I know it's oversimplified, but at a crux, that is what's going on with these iconic yeah, animals. Yeah. You look at all the science, all the scientific data, and you look at the fact that you know white rhinos, you know those populations have dropped off precipitously due to poaching. But the places where they're still growing and doing well are places that they do have legal hunting of them because that's the mm -hmm. people that are raising them and taking care of them. And so it's it, and, and what we're looking at in Zambia and the lower Luano is a similar situation. Whereas if these people can see and, and there is money, I mean I've heard some stories and I, I know some folks out there have pushed this theory that only three percent of a safari hunt. Uh, the money from that goes to the local community. And quite frankly, it's rubbish. It's not only yeah. rubbish, it's an out-and-out -out lie. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you on that. I've got to say, actually, to some of the listeners that might hear that kind of thing, um, we won't go too much into the detail of that, but that 3% of which I, that is quite simply, I'm confident enough to say that is absolutely not true. Yeah, and it's the best way to explain it is is that so the safari operator he, he takes eighty thousand dollars to go on a, a lion hunt in Zambia, you know, a certain amount of that money, and that that only covers the base hunt. Now he's got to go out the hunter and shoot some baits, so there's going to be trophy fees attached to those other baits. There might be another ten thousand dollars U.S. added on that. He's also going to pay tips to the staff and to the professional hunter and, and drivers and skinners and all that stuff. So he, he might spend a hundred thousand dollars U.S. on that. So what about 80, 85,000 pounds on that mm -hmm. particular hunt? That money's not going off to some offshore account in Panama like some of your politicians in Europe like to do, or even in my <laughs> politicians in the United States. It's literally going back into these people running their businesses. So, of course, people get paid salaries, but then you have to pay for the maintenance of all of these facilities that they have. They have to maintain their vehicles, so they may be buying parts from their local, mm -hmm. for their Land Cruisers from the Toyota dealership in Lusaka. They may be hiring other people to do uh, development that they've already agreed to with the community. Of course, the, if we're talking about the actual fee for the for the trophy, then that money is allocated to national parks. It's allocated to the community resource boards. And in this case, in Shikabata, the chief even gets 5% of every one of those fees. So the thing about it is at the end of the day, you know, if somebody paid you to build a barn next door to your house and you knew how to build a barn and they, and it was, you know, let's say it's a hundred thousand us to build the barn at the end of the day, let's say you build a barn for $80,000 and you got 20,000 left. Well, you're going to use that 20,000 to pay your mortgage, to pay your health <laughs> insurance or pay whatever insurance you got to pay for. You're going to have to pay for marketing for the next year. So somebody else will hire you to go on a hunt or hire you to buy a barn or you know, build a barn. I mean, it, that's just the reality of life. And so when people start to spin things because they have a bias, and this is a bias that's coming from the scientific community, which should be a big no-no. The reality there is it does a huge disservice to wildlife and wildlife habitat. It does a huge disservice to these rural indigenous communities. And it does a huge disservice to our planet. Because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, if we want this to be a healthy place to live, then we all have to work together. And we have to make sure that we make smart decisions based on science where we also take into account humans and our relationship with wildlife and what we need to have healthy lives. And the more education we have on the landscape, the better off we're going to be on this. I, a matter of fact, I, I got a, a WhatsApp today from, from Professor Hart, uh, Adam Hart, and uh, the uh, CITES folks are having a, a World Wildlife Day next month, and we're going to do a screening of my film with a Q&A with Amazing. the panel of, of CITES, which is the authority that oversees traffic of wildlife all over the world. Mm. And so, you know, and I've been really blessed with this film also to be able to meet lots of politicians um, here in the United States. We've I've done screenings with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's upper leadership in Washington, D.C. We've been able to talk with a lot of congressmen and women about it. We're actually going to have a screening coming up in Washington, D.C. soon uh, with wow. the Natural Resources Committee for Congress in the United States. I even have state legislators booking me to come and do screenings in front of the entire state legislature so that they understand the, the issues that are around this. Because the parallels in Africa are no different than any other part of the world. You know, here in mm -hmm. Montana, we, we've got grizzly bears and wolves and elk and deer and stuff. And then we've got people out there that, that don't understand that, you know, people need to see a benefit. You know, our ranching community, some of them have been on the land for four or five generations. I know that pales in comparison to your country. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm 97%, and I'm according to the 23andMe, I'm 90% British and Irish, so and Scottish. <laughs> so um, so I, I understand it. But the reality there, though, is, is that even with those ranchers, you know, they're trying to raise 
cows on it or sheep on their land, but they're not going to leave extra hay or extra grass on the ground for the animals if they don't see a value in it. And in a lot of cases, these guys are able to have people pay to come and, and pursue animals on their properties. And it, it literally is a difference between breaking even and going out of business is that money. And so we just have to understand that there are people that have their hands on this that are taken care of. Of course, we don't want bad people out there abusing the resource. And that's why we have to be, you know, we have to be, we have to watch everyone, our politicians. We have to watch our, our operators. We have to watch the general public and make sure that we're doing what's right. But at the end of the day, I want to leave this place better than I found it. Yeah, and I think that's what it comes down to. And I'm glad that you the point you just mentioned there, because that's an interesting I guess thought when we're when we're talking about what you're feeling, especially what Killing the Shepherd's talking about, and even what Into the Wild has been looking at recently, is hunting safaris or trophy hunting, conservation hunting, hunting in general, whatever we're going to call it, as a tourism tourism income. Let's talk about specifically in Africa, has benefits. I think that is indisputable, absolutely indisputable. However, and like any other activity, it's going to at some point have its problems. How do you think it's best to manage? hunting safaris to improve the activity for communities in some areas where there are problems? Yeah, that's a great question because we do hear, we hear, you always hear about the bad apples in the bunch. You don't Mm. hear about the other 99% of the bunch. That's wonderful, delicious, sweet apples. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. You know, I, I think transparency is such going to be a really important thing. I, I've been working on a, a blueprint to showcase, as I mentioned earlier, I, I don't see these companies as moving forward. I mean, historically, the model, the business model for the safari hunting company has been to hire a handful of people in the community over a, a window of time during the hunting season. Of course, mm-hmm. nobody's doing anything during the rainy season, which is a you know almost half the year in some places. And so, and then when they have a successful hunt, they drop off a few hunks of meat here and there. They ain't going to hack it because there's so many pressures on these wild landscapes, on these ecosystems, and the governments don't have the resources to do it. So what we need to do is we need to see that economic model, that blueprint change. So these companies are biodiversity companies in so much as that they are tasked with protecting the resources. Mm. And, if they, and they have to see a value on it and, and also helping the local communities to be a part of that solution. That's the key thing, because yeah. if you don't get a buy-in with them, then you're not going to stop poaching. And the thing is, is and, and they have to also be able, these native people have to be able to hunt. You know, at the end yeah. of the day, a lot of guys will fight with me in the hunting community. Like, oh, well, they're just a bunch of poachers. No, they're not. They're either trying to take care of their family, either putting food on the on the table or in the pot, or they're trying to make a buck. Now, we understand that if you don't utilize that resource properly, then we can eradicate it. Okay, well, there's got to be a way where these people can continue to do something that they have been doing for a lot longer than, you know, our colonial uh, ancestors showed up on the mm. landscape or, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just the reality of it. And then once yeah. they have a buy-in and the local communities involved and there's transparency and we understand what's going on and we're doing science in these areas right now, I'm working with professor Hart and Amy Dickman from mm-hmm. Oxford about doing a research project in the lower Luano to do a full wow. ecological review. We've already had uh, 71 GPS collars donated to us. We're working with a researcher out of, of Switzerland that's teamed up with them that we're going to try to get some collars. Uh, we're going to be doing a GoFundMe project here pretty soon. And the idea is that we're going to try to get collars on some of the leopards and some of the lions, but also the prey species and fully mm. understand as best we can what's going on in that ecosystem so that if there is any harvest of animals, it's done completely with all the information we need to know up front from the scientist about what the impact's going to be. Can it sustain a lion or can it sustain a, a leopard or Two or three or whatever it is, you know, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that the people in the community are going to see a benefit. We're going to see that the operator sees a benefit. So if we have all the tools in front of us and we understand what's going on in the ecosystem, then we can make a whole lot better decisions. And the nice thing about scientists, it's, it's pretty hard to say, okay, well, that didn't happen. You know, that GPS yeah, collar yeah. didn't mark them going here, you know? So, and that's one thing that we all, all of us as human beings can look back and rely on. It's like, hey, this is not just somebody's idea or somebody's trying to rape the resource. At the end mm-hmm. of the day, this is, this is what's going to make our planet a better place. There was one more quick, because when you were describing what was happening in the film, and I watched it myself, and I think I said it before we pressed record today, is that there were some really heavy moments in it. For you, was it hard to work for such a long time in the region of this region of Zambia with the people to then face some of the harsh realities of what happened in this situation? Yeah. I spent enough time over there, you know, embedded with the people, working with the Nortons, 
uh, traveling from village to village. And, and like I said earlier, it's not, it, you know, we, I didn't start shooting wildlife footage until the last two weeks I was there. Um, mm. The story is about the people and their, their willingness to, to do something you know, to make change for the better for everybody. We didn't, we haven't really gotten into the details of the film. So if folks want to watch the film, you can watch it. Go to killingtheshepherd.com right now. That's what I was going to ask. Actually. When, when yes. can people watch so the film? You can watch it right now. It's available on our website. So just go, uh, it's the shepherds of wildlife society.org. But if you just go to killingtheshepherd.com, that'll take you to it. You can watch it. It is a paywall. We are charging four ninety five dollars to, to rent it for a day, but you know, it goes for a good cause. So, yeah. um, so we ask people definitely come and watch it there. But, um, you know, there were people there that I got to know that we lost. And, mm-hmm. you know, those are the people that I really, when I did the first cut of the film, I wanted to do a dedication because some of these people, I mean, really the whole reason why I was there was because of one of these people. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's just, you, you come back. I mean, it's, 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 and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it's like, it's like dating somebody that has bipolar disease you have these huge highs and these huge lows. And, um, you know, I mean, when, when COVID came, I mean, I could just see the writing on the wall. There was, you know, they were, they were finally starting to get some opportunity to bring in some tourism and yeah. some folks do some hunting and that was completely shut down. And then I, I got a phone call right in the, you know, right. I think in April of that year, 2020, and I, you know, one of the most prominent people, uh, died. And, you know, it's it just, it was really tough at times. Cause it's like, well, where am I going with this film? If this person's dead, yeah, you, know, you spend all this time and energy in there, but it, then again, it's like, well, you just got to keep telling the story, and then you're trying to figure out how do I? I mean, I'm not there. I can't travel there to go to the funeral, but how am I going to tell that story? And then there was other. I had a game scout that he died of uh, uh, about halfway through the film. His name was Innocence, and he died of uh, sleeping sickness, which is from the tsetse fly. This is a tsetse fly area, so there isn't really any domesticated animals living on the landscape except for mm. some dogs and a few goats and uh but you know that was tough too you know because it's like you come back and he's not there anymore and uh, so there's these holes that you have and uh yeah but again it's tempered with a lot of positive things tempered with the fact that the wildlife populations have exploded they now have legal hunting there if you would like to go to Makasa safaris and do the full on hunting safari you can go and do that and you're going to benefit the people you're going to benefit the wildlife but probably the biggest thing for me ryan was was the schools it's so humbling to see the numbers of children that are going to school now for the first time that if I had never brought my cameras to the Luano, never, they still wouldn't be going to school. Yeah. And, and seeing the reaction of, of the broader public when they watch the film and, you know, we're starting to get some folks that want to help out. Um, we've got this snare bracelet program. I love that program, by the way. Can I just say that was one of, a, it was such a tiny part of the film, but when I saw that at the end, I was like, Oh, it's reusing materials. It's ticking every Ryan box. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was such a great idea. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, I think it was in the December of 2019. I was sitting in the Capanda Fish Camp, and uh, they had a huge pile of snares sitting there. I mean, they, to date, I think it's over 17,000 snares, wire snares, have been wow. removed out of the Lower Luano by the Game Scouts, and about somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred firearms, mostly handmade, homemade mm. jobs, but. You know, I, I saw those uh, snares sitting there, and I was like, well, geez, I, what do you guys do with these things, is what I asked. And they said, well, you know, anytime we're pouring concrete, we throw them in, you know, and let, nobody, that way nobody can use them. And it kind of works as reinforcing material there in the, in the concrete that they're pouring. And so I said, hey, I got an idea. Let's just take the best ones and hold them off. I want to take some of these back to the States with me. And so what I did is I brought some back and my, uh, my oldest daughter is quite the little artist. And so I, uh, I said, Hey, I got this idea. Do you think you could take these and kind of de- make up something? So I think she in her high school, uh, jewelry class or something, she designed this bracelet. And so what came of that was this idea to create both unisex bracelets and men's and women's bracelets. Uh, and you know, every one of those bracelets, if you buy one off our website at shepherdsofwildlife.org, you save an animal because that's one, one less snare out in the wild. And mm-hmm. so my goal with that, I hope, is, is the movie continues to, to broaden its scope on different platforms around the world. I hope that uh, we'll get a big influx of people that'll want to do that. 
and participate in it and save wildlife, but also help pay for the salaries of these women. I hope we can grow this to, to we can have literally dozens of women working for us, maybe in mm -hmm. different countries, working with other safari operators. Uh, and then we're actually, we're just starting to put some money into a scholarship fund. You know, you have to pay to go to school there, even primary school, but secondary school is a little more expensive. And, and most, most parents won't pay for the girls in their family to go to secondary school. So what we'd like to do is provide uh, an academic scholarship opportunity so that we can start to get some of these girls that uh, want to go to secondary school get an education. And I think that's uh, long term. I mean, these are the leaders of tomorrow. Yeah. So, you know, making sure that they, they learn English and they understand, you know, how the benefits have come to them and then what the future can hold. I think, you know, that's where you have those stakeholders that are 100% invested in what's going on. And if that's mm -hmm. the case, 100 years from now, the Luana will be teaming with wildlife and people will be happy and it'll be an incredible experience for anyone to go to, which I also have offered some trips. Uh, I'm going to do some eco trips in October this year uh, where folks could come with me and I'll be hosting them kind of walk in the filmmakers uh, footsteps kind of deal. Amazing. It's, I mean, the film is fantastic. So my listeners, the link to Shepherds of Wildlife is in the write-up of this episode. And from someone that watched it just two days ago from this recording, pay for it. It's absolutely fantastic. It is worth the watch. It's insightful. It's an incredible story. You've captured it so wonderfully as well, Tom. You really have like the, the ups and the downs. The benefits are there and it was really a pleasure to watch it. I guess my last question for you, Tom, is one that everyone gets asked on Into the Wild is if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? You know, I would ask all those people out in the modern Western world. So, you know, across, across Europe and, and uh, you know, throughout North America and in parts of Asia, just keep your eyes open and, and be open to other mm. ideas than what you're being told on the media or being told on social media. Because unfortunately, there are forces out there, you know, just like we're seeing the UK right now with Boris Johnson's trophy uh, import ban. We have forces out there that are, are colluding that have billions of dollars that they've taken from people under the auspices that they're going to save wildlife that are absolutely doing the opposite. They're the antichrist of wildlife conservation. At the end of the day, you know, flying elephants around, you know, and putting them in a reserve in, in Tanzania <laughs> is not going to save wildlife or elephants. But I can tell you right now, the people in Loano, the people of Shekabeta, if they can see a benefit from uh, tourist hunting in their area and they can see other benefits from people coming to do ecotourism, uh, you know, that we're bringing in, then they will make sure that there's elephants there forever. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you for making the film. And, and I can't wait to see what more you make in the future. Yeah, we've got lots more coming up, but I'm looking forward to it. And, and uh, definitely, uh, Ryan, thank you for the opportunity to be here and talking to your listeners. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the project and the work Tom is working on, then you can do so on social media. His tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. If you would like a shout out on the show or to be put into a draw to win a free Into the Wild podcast mug, yes please, then all you have to do is review the show on iTunes or Spotify or both and send me a screen grab, take part in our weekly nature highlight share every Sunday on Instagram, or you can tip Into the Wild via our Ko-fi link in the write-up of this episode. Of course, you can do all three of those things and increase your chance of winning the monthly mug. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.